Hi, Brad Jersak here. I'm here to tell you about my new book, A More Christ-like Way. We're going to be talking about the Jesus Way, or the Jesus Walk. I'll start the book with some conversation about deconstruction, which is a very popular term these days. And I'll offer some alternative metaphors that I think are more gentle, such as art restoration, for example. Then we'll get into four counterfeit ways, ways that we've constructed that try to co-opt Christianity and turn it into Christless religion. Ways that have a moralistic attitude to it, or perhaps us-them mentalities and exclusion, or civil religion for that matter. But then we'll get to the heart of the book. Seven facets of the Christ-like way. And those facets will include such gems as radical inclusion, radical hospitality, radical surrender, radical forgiveness, and so on. In this book, Jesus shows us what it is to be human. Today, uh, the reading is on two chapters in the book, Radical Peacemaking slash Forgiveness and Radical Surrender. And there's a lot of content. If you're reading along with us and then you're meeting with the, the online connect group on Wednesday nights, you know, get a head start on your reading because there's a lot of, of, of heavy content here. There's no way I can do justice to it all in one sermon. So what I'm doing is I'm picking up one common thread in both chapters, and that's the topic of forgiveness. Uh, practicing forgiveness instead of violence, which leads to peace and rest. That's the thread I'm picking up uh, for this sermon today. So. As we said at the beginning of the series, this book is challenging. It's a book that will challenge you in many ways. It may make you uncomfortable at times. That's good. We want that, correct? We want to be challenged to move out of our comfort zones at times. And most people know that Jesus said things like, love your enemies and pray for people who persecute you and, and forgive others as God has forgiven you. And, and first of all, those teachings are incredibly difficult to live, we all know that. And at the same time, there has been uh, a large amount of toxic theology and bad sermons, frankly, around the topic of forgiveness. And so here's my goal today. I want this sermon today to be the best sermon on forgiveness you've ever heard in your life. How's that for a humble goal? <laughs> but here's the thing, it's probably not gonna be that hard because I haven't heard many good sermons on forgiveness. I've heard forgiveness talked about in ways that actually made the problem worse. First of all, didn't even define what forgiveness was, and, and so you have people who have been abused horribly, and then they're told, well, you just gotta forgive them. Like, it's just a button you push, like the easy button, and then, oh, you're forgiven, and it's, you just gotta do it, and it's, and it's that easy. And so you have people who've already been hurt who are hurt worse by that toxic, theology. You have well-meaning Christians who feel guilty about setting boundaries with people in their life who are toxic people to be around. You have people who are, are right now trying to figure out how do I deal with family members and friends in my life who are just repeating propaganda to me or telling racist jokes. How do I have a relationship with them? How do I forgive them? How do I, how do I see what so many people are doing in our society and the havoc they're wreaking because they believe lies? And I see what's happening to America. How do I forgive them? What does that even look like? What does that mean? And, and, and so you, you'll have Christians who feel like they have to be around people who are hurting them. Or ha they have to put up with lies and, and, and the, the, the racism 
because they're supposed to forgive. It's just, it's just a misunderstood topic. You also have people who want to forgive and they want to move on, but they feel like they can't. You have people who were wronged in some painful way that really did affect their lives and they want to move past it. They want to follow Jesus Christ. They do want to forgive as they've been forgiven. And, and it, it sounds so easy in a sermon, but they just feel like they can't get past it. So when we talk about forgiveness, on the one hand, we have people who are hurt and they want to forgive and they don't know how, or they just heard toxic uh, teaching about forgiveness. And then on the other hand, we have a different issue in America, and that's Christians who generally seem to approve of violence. And those are the two things that Bradley Jersak contrasts here, forgiveness and violence. So in 2014, when America was discovering more about the torture of suspected terrorists by our government, people who self-identified as Christians were more likely than non-religious people to support tactics that were classified as torture. Did you catch that? So the religious people were more likely to support the torture than the non-religious people. 75% of white evangelicals said the tactics were justified compared to 41% of non-religious people. The self-identifying Christians were more likely to support what could be called torture than the non-religious people. Brad Jerzak makes it more personal and he writes that when somebody wrongs us, it's natural for us to want to get them back, to get vengeance against that person in some way. It's easy for us to hate people who hurt us and hold on to a grudge and want to get them back. And, and he makes the point that is a form of violence, even if there are no physical punches involved, emotionally, mentally, and the way we think about that person, we can think about them in violent ways. On social media, obviously, we can act towards a person in ways that are verbally violent. We can build alliances and talk about people behind their backs and kind of get people on our side. And that's a form of violence. And he writes on page 171, violence just begets escalating violence. We think that getting somebody back and I'll show them, and I'll teach them, and, and we just say something that's violent, or we, we have a, an attitude towards that person is violent, we think that that's just going to solve it. Like, hey, if I just get my way and, and, and I get to do what I want to do, then that'll, that'll solve it. But actually, no, they just come back at us. And now it's a cycle of this escalating violence. The revenge game never ends. It just escalates into more and more of a brutal back and forth. And of course, that means if, if we're not able to forgive and we want to act in violent ways, we will not experience the peace and rest that he talks about in these chapters. So during my very fast four-day San Diego vacation, uh, one of the places we went was uh, Point Loma Nazarene University. It's just south of Sunset Cliff. Some of, some of you may have been there, maybe not, but um, it's, a, it's a Nazarene school, and it's a sister school of the college that my wife and I went to in rural Ohio. So we went to a Nazarene school out in the sticks because we didn't know there was one on the ocean. We didn't know about Point Loma at the time. I pulled up at the guard shack and stopped, and, and we had our boys in the back, and, and I said, hey, it was a young guy who's probably a student there, and he's a guard there. I'm like, hey, we went to Mount Vernon Nazarene, and he just kind of looked at me. I'm like, you've never heard of that, have you? And he's like, no, I haven't. I don't blame you, man. Okay, and you would have come here anyway, even if you had. So we went to Point Loma Nazarene, and um, we went to the gym at Point Loma, and we saw this photo. 
there's a plaque and uh, a podium that overlooks their, their gymnasium. And then you read the plaque and it explains this and, and uh, just a kind of an amazing realization when you're standing there. That podium is where Martin Luther King Jr. stood on May 29th, 1964 to give a speech in this gym. And that plaque in the podium commemorates that. And it was during, at that, the next picture actually shows uh, the, the newspaper photo from that day. And that plaque commemorates the speech that he gave during the civil rights campaign in 1964 when he was uh, traveling the country in support of civil rights legislation, giving uh, folks the, the right to vote. And he spoke to 5,000 people there that day. And, and during that speech, he said, segregation is a cancer in the body politic that must be removed before our nation can be healthy again. And he mentioned the segregationist governor of Alabama who was running for president at that time, George Wallace. And, and he said, because Wallace had gotten so many votes nationally, we know we have a national problem about race. And I know you've probably thought that recently as well as we see things that are happening in our country. And, and then he said, I'm convinced deep in my heart that by using nonviolence, we can turn racial discord into a symphony of brotherhood. And if you're finding it hard to forgive, it might help to remember what others have forgiven. Of course, during the civil rights movement of the 60s, African-Americans here were subjected to cruel injustice and violence. And before that, even worse. And, and your stomach turns when you hear stories about lynching and mob violence and school children being killed and people sprayed with fire hoses and being attacked by dogs. And, Martin Luther King Jr. was the victim of violence that ultimately took his life, but he's known for how he responded to it. From a sermon called Loving Your Enemies, Martin Luther King Jr. wrote this. Forgiveness means rather that the evil act no longer remains as a barrier to the relationship. And we'll talk more about that here in a second. Forgiveness is a catalyst creating the atmosphere necessary for a fresh start and a new beginning. It is the lifting of a burden or the canceling of a debt. And so that's the kind of nonviolence and forgiveness that Brad Jerzak is writing about in these two chapters. Nonviolence and forgiveness are the only things that can turn discord into peace and rest. And so I want to ask you a question. And when I, when I prepare sermons, like I, uh, I've been doing this a while, and I know all of the cliche things to say about forgiveness. I, I know the good pastor points and that kind of thing. But here, here's been something that I've been focusing on. Um, definitely during the pandemic and during lockdown, we were online only more than I had in the past. Of course, I always try to do this, but it's just, it's been something that has been just front and center for me uh, over the past couple of years. And that is when I have a topic that I'm preaching about, I'm asking the question, how is this going to change my life first before I expect it to change anybody else's life? How does this scripture speak to me? What does this topic say to me? Because if it's not, if it's not changing my life, how is it going to change anybody else's, correct? I mean, that's a question that pastors ought to ask, right? And, and I've, I always have, but I mean more so. I've just been challenged over the past couple of years to really just grow. And I think I said it a few weeks ago. The past few years have shown me what I don't want to be. It's clarified for me as I've seen the ugliness in our society and a lot of it perpetuated by religious people. Here's what I don't want to be. And so I think maybe that's why I've been challenged so much. And so as we talk about forgiveness today, 
I want to ask you this question that I've been asking myself, and this is tough. When, when we talk about forgiveness, who pops into your mind? Who is difficult for you to forgive? What was done to you that is difficult for you to forgive? There are probably more than one thing, but there may be one thing that sticks out more, the, more than the others. And it's a difficult question, isn't it? I know for some people it's triggering because the things you think about are horrible, horrible cases of abuse. What is it? What is it that you think of? Who is it that you think of? when we talk about forgiveness. And I start like that because that's what I've been doing as I've been working through this material. And I wanna share how that's been working in my own life and then, and then how I believe that God could speak to you today as well. So who is it? Right. Now, there's a lot of misunderstanding about what forgiveness means. And this is material that I've shared before a couple of times at least over the past 10 years that I've been pastoring in this area. But every time I share this, I think, you know, I could preach on this every single week and it wouldn't be enough because of all the damage that's been done, talking about forgiveness and, and all the pain that we've all feel and, and that people have, you know, things that people have done to us and, and our struggle for healing. So I wanna talk for a moment about what forgiveness is not. How does that sound? What forgiveness isn't? Because a lot of times I think that's where the misunderstanding comes from. As you think about you know, who it is you need to forgive or that, that struggle that maybe you want to and you, it feels like you can't and, and maybe you're not sure you want to. Well, I think a lot, uh, a lot could be helped by talking about what forgiveness is not. So first of all, forgiveness is not trust. Forgiveness does not equal trust. You can forgive somebody and not trust that person. There, there are some pastor points that are worth repeating. You can forgive somebody and not trust that person. And like when King said, forgiveness removes the barrier to the relationship. It removes the barrier of unforgiveness. But there are other barriers in a relationship. If somebody, let's just kind of pick the extreme example. If somebody is, a, is an abuser, you can forgive them, but are you gonna invite them to babysit your kids? Come on now, folks. Are you gonna invite them to babysit your kids? No, absolutely not, because forgiveness is not Trust. Trust is something that is earned over time, if ever, depending on the offense. It may be that that person is never trusted in that sense again, but for forgiveness can be instant. You can forgive somebody, but trust, in, in an instant, but trust is earned over time, if it's possible at all to earn the trust. Second, forgiveness is not excusing somebody's offense. It's not pretending like it was you know, no big deal or it didn't happen or it wasn't that harmful or, or just downplaying it, kind of denial, denying what happened and pretending it was no big deal. No, forgiveness is not excusing. What happened was harmful, painful. It was a, a weight, a burden placed on you. It was wrong. So forgiveness is not excusing that behavior. Now, this is a challenging one for some folks who, who believe just the cliches. Forgiveness is not necessarily forgetting. And here's what I mean by that. When you touch the hot stove and you burn your hand, your brain says to you, what? Don't ever get near that stove burner again. Matter of fact, your brain would rather you to stay ten, you know, 10 feet away from the stove for the rest of your life. And, and that's, that's out of your control, really. That, that, that initial 
reaction at least in your brain is something that is hardwired into the human psyche. It protects us if we hear, you know, and, and somehow in our development, if we hear a rustling in the bushes, that could be a tiger, right? And we just, we just know, don't, don't go back to that source of, of pain anymore. So when you touch the hot stove burner, your brain says to you, don't you ever forget that. You remember that hot stove burner. The same thing is true when somebody hurts us deeply. Our brain tells us, stay away from them. Don't, don't forget what they did to you. You remember what they did to you because it could happen again. And it's a survival mechanism. And so our brains are wired in such a way that you may never forget. Now the memory may fade, but you will never necessarily forget what happened. A lot of times people act like they're gonna forget and you know, that's just denial. It's just back to point two, acting like it never really happened. No, it's something that our brains probably won't let us forget. And then here's the big one for me. Forgiveness is not the same thing as grieving. I had a professor in seminary who said that everything that happens in your life that causes you pain is a loss. Somebody leaves, obviously. Um, obviously, a death is a loss, of course. But a, you know, a job's disappointment, that's a loss. Somebody who says something to you that wounds you deeply, that's a loss. You see how that works? It's a loss of the relationship you had. It was a loss of the state that you lived in before that painful thing happened to you. So everything that, that happens that causes pain is a loss of some kind. And, she, and my professor, Teresa Davis was her name, she said, every loss must be grieved. Every loss must be grieved. And grief is an emotion that must be expressed over time until it loses its power. Most of the time, grief is the most intense shortly after the loss. And then if we're able to express it well, it subsides over time and it loses its power over time. What happens if we don't express the grief, however? It comes out in other ways. I'm not a clinical psychologist, but I've, I've read enough to know that grief comes out in different ways. If we don't express it, if we don't deal with it, if we deny it, if we excuse it, that kind of thing, it comes out in different ways. It can come out physically. You can have people with, with stomach ailments and heart issues because of unexpressed grief. People who have difficulty sleeping, anxiety issues because of un, unexpressed grief, uh, grief, losses that have not been grieved. And so here's the amazing news about forgiveness and grief. If you're the kind of person who says, you know what, whoever it is you're thinking of or whatever happened, you know, I would like to forgive that person. I would like to forgive them and move on. I don't want to hold on to it. I don't want to be bitter. I don't want to hold a grudge. I, I want to be free from it. I want to get past it and move on. I want to forgive them. But I just, can't, I just can't seem to do it. Here's the amazing news for you. If you say that kind of stuff, the truth is you've probably already forgiven them. You just haven't fully grieved. You probably already have forgiven them. But the, the grief that's there, the pain of what happened, it cut you so deeply that that grief, that that grief is still there. And there's still some more grieving to do. It may not be a forgiveness issue at all. It might be a grieving issue. And that's when talking to a counselor can help or talking to a trusted friend or, or journaling or screaming into a pillow. And I'm being totally serious. Ways of expressing grief and get it all out until it begins to lose its power over time. And grief always takes longer than we want it to, doesn't it? To, to subside. But it may be 
that it's actually not even a forgiveness issue in your life, but it's a grief issue. Forgiveness is not the same thing as grieving. So let's talk about what forgiveness is. So that's what it's not. What is forgiveness? And this might be shocking to some folks, uh, what forgiveness actually means in the New Testament. In the New Testament, the word for forgiveness is the exact same word as the word for divorce. Did you know that? Isn't that strange? When I've taught on that and I've said that, like I can actually see people's heads go, like take it, take it back. It's just so awkward and weird, isn't it? It's unexpected, but the word for forgiveness is the exact same word in the New Testament as the word for divorce. It's the Greek word afiami, afiami. And it's a combo word. I try to ignore that when it happens. Like there's no ignoring that. Is there that noise? I try, I do my best. Um, it's a combo word that means to separate and to put in motion. To separate and then to put in motion. So we would translate that in English, to send away. It's the exact same word as divorce. When you divorce somebody, you send them away. It means to send away, to let something go, to release or to drop, afiami, to, to separate yourself from something and to send it in motion, to send it away. So divorce means that you send a person away. And this is hardcore to talk about, isn't it? I mean, but this is, this is what happens in divorce. You no longer want that person in your life and you're sending them away. It's, I don't want you in my life anymore and you're creating separation and you are, you're actively sending them away. It's an active word. A lot of times we will say something like, let it go, like the frozen reference, or let it go. And that, that sounds kind of passive, just to let something go. That can be one of the meanings of afiami, but it's, that's too passive. If it, if it means let it go, it's like letting go in the sense of dropping something that doesn't want to be let go. It's, it's an active power word. It's a power move. It's an active motion, a choice, a powerful action of sending something away. And so when it's applied to forgiveness, it doesn't necessarily mean to send the person away. It means to send the offense away. But once again, the key is it's an active choice. It's a powerful move. There's nothing passive about it. There's nothing, it's not like you know, I, I've heard sermons before that have made forgiveness sound like it's almost like you're being re-victimized. Like, I, you know, I'm, I'm just going to lay down as a doormat and I'm going to forgive and that means people can do to me whatever they want and that's not what this means. It's an active power word that you are actively choosing to send something away. There's an offense that was committed against me and I'm going to send that offense out of my life. I don't want it in my life anymore. I'm telling the offense, pack your bags. I don't, I don't want you around anymore, and I'm actively choosing the powerful move of sending that offense away. One of the, I mean, I guess not one of, the most powerful example I can think from Scripture comes from Jesus in Luke chapter 23. When Jesus was on the cross, and uh, let's go ahead and just read it. Luke 23, verses 32 through 34. Two other men, both criminals, were also let out with him to be executed. 
When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said, say it with me, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And then what did they do? The, the soldiers who were crucifying him, did they have a change of heart? Like, oh man, he forgave us. Let's take him down off the cross. What did they do? Then they divided up his clothes by casting lots. But the most powerful example that I can think of, at least, of this active choice to send away the offense, even while the offense is being perpetrated, comes from Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. The Romans, the soldiers, the people pounding nails into my hands and feet, they don't know what they're doing. They're acting in ignorance. They're acting in darkness. So I have pity on them, and I pray for their forgiveness. Wow. That's not somebody who is a victim. At that point, you have to question who the real powerful person is. And it looks to me like Jesus. Not the people who are pounding the nails. The real powerful person is somebody who can look at somebody who's acting in ignorance and living in darkness and, and pity them and pray on their behalf, God forgive these people because they're acting in ignorance and darkness and making the active choice to send the offense away. That's, that's power. And when, you're, when you refuse to forgive somebody, it's like they still hold power over you. We know how this works, right? Maybe somebody hurt us years ago Maybe they're not even in our lives anymore. They may not even be alive anymore. But holding on to that offense allows that person to still hold power over you. They're not here anymore, hopefully. If they are, that's a boundary issue. But if they're not even here anymore, committing that offense against you, and it's still, it's still living rent-free in your head, they're still holding power over you. And when you forgive somebody, you're making the active, powerful choice to send that offense away and saying, that's not going to have power over me anymore. I'm making the powerful choice to send that offense away. And so forgiving somebody is a power move that frees both them and you. It's the most powerful choice you can make. The person's acting in ignorance and darkness and it's messed up and weird and and so, and I don't understand it, and I never will, but I have pity on that person. God, for, forgive them, and I'm going to forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And I'm going to make the active, powerful choice to send it away, to send the offense away. So, of course, while I'm preparing for a sermon on forgiveness, somebody really ticks me off. That's, of course, that's how that works. So yesterday, uh, we decided uh, to go grab lunch as a family and... and um, jumped on the 202 and while we were merging onto the 202 there's a spot where um, it's coming off of Gilbert Road so you've got two lanes and then you make a left on the 202 and then those two lanes merge into one entrance lane onto the 202 so you can have cars that are pretty pretty even in the two lanes and then they have to merge on into, into one lane on the 202 and so I was ahead of the, the car next to me I promise I was. I was ahead of the car next to me by at least six inches. You know, I was ahead of him. And I really did, you know, I really did think I looked back and I, okay, they're kind of back there. And so I'm like, all right, I'm going to go. 
And I took off down the, the entrance ramp to the 202 and uh, merged on the 202. And then that same car, they you know, darted behind me. And I've got my whole family in the car. And then they sped right next to me. And the, the driver and the passenger both flipped the bird out the window. And I got to be careful because I gesture a lot when I speak. And so I have to watch out that I don't. And so they flipped the bird as they're passing by. And, and they just kept, kept it up like they had their flag raised, you know, for like, sheesh. And my you know, family's there. And I'm like, really? And, and there was this moment where I was just, oh, can't believe they did that. I was mad. And you know, I was ahead of them. They didn't have any right to do that. I didn't cut them off. And they, they speed by and flip the bird, blah, blah, blah. And, and, and then here's what I thought. It, it, I didn't think it immediately. It took me a couple miles down the road because I'm, I'm working on a sermon on forgiveness. Okay? And I realize this is a facetious story that may, I mean, what happened to you, whatever you're thinking of, may be infinitely more painful than this. But I'm just, I'm just kind of telling a lighthearted story. So a few miles down the road, I thought, you know what? Somebody who's going to, you know, they were behind me. I promise they were. They were behind me on in the ramp. And then they fly behind me, and then they just, you know, flip the bird to a whole family. You know, somebody who does that, they've probably been mistreated a lot in their own lives. Somebody who's that ticked off, and they're just flipping the bird on the highway, you know, for nothing. They've probably been mistreated a lot in their lives. They've probably been treated like that. And, and who knows what their story is. They may have been, you know, hurt in, in all kinds of ways. And I, I had to think about, you know what, why would I want to be angry when I think somebody who was, was probably hurt in some way they, they haven't healed from, and that, that's probably behind their behavior, why would, I, why would I let that live rent-free in my head as I drive my family to lunch? No, I know that's just a little example. It's no big deal. And whatever you might be thinking of could be, again, be infinitely more painful than that. But I think that's what Jesus is doing on the cross. They're acting in ignorance, they're acting in darkness, imagining what is behind somebody's behavior. Now remember, is forgiving excusing somebody? No, no. Well, it's like, well, somebody had a bad childhood, so now it's okay that they abuse people, right? No, no, it's not excusing somebody. It's just understanding people's humanity. And, and then there are some things we may never understand. Uh, there was a person who told me a story about horrible abuse. And, and she said, I just can't find it in my heart to forgive them. And, and this is what she said, because I, and I, don't, I don't see any little kids here, uh, sexual abuse. She said, I can't, I can't find it in my heart to forgive them. Because I don't, here's what she said, I don't understand why he did that. And so the, the feeling was, I can't forgive him until I understand why. Now think about that for a second. Will, will you ever really understand why somebody would do that? No. That's never going to make any sense. Never going to be under, able to understand why a pedophile does that. They're, they're, you're not going to understand that. You wouldn't want to. But in, in her mind, that, that was a feeling of some kind of power, understanding why. And I, and I just kind of gently said back, you wouldn't want to understand why. You know, I, I don't think that's, it might feel like that's what you're looking for, but probably not. And forgiveness is not understanding why. 
somebody would do that. But forgiving somebody is a power move that frees both them and you. And it leads to the peace and rest that Brad Jerzak is talking about. That's the payoff. Living in peace and rest and not having to carry that weight and that anxiety and that, that offense that person living rent-free in your head and hurting you all over again, constantly over and over and over and over again, even if they're long gone, the payoff for us is that we can be free from that and experience a sense of wholeness and well-being and peace and rest that, that we have not been able to experience since they committed their offense. I wanna give a quick promo for where we're headed here a couple weeks from now. Next week, we're wrapping up this series. Two weeks from today, we're starting a brand new series on October 24th called Live Well. And I don't know if you would, you would agree with me, but I think this is true of my life. Um, the past two years have probably been the hardest years of my life. I don't know, maybe you wouldn't agree with that, maybe you would, but as I think about my own life, this has been the hardest two years of my life. In, in various ways, it doesn't mean other t terrible things didn't happen before that, but this, these past couple of years, they've been doozies. And I think they have challenged our sense of well-being, our, our, our health emotionally, physically, and, and more, more than any other time that I can remember. The, the, obviously, the COVID shutdown and the added stress of loneliness and, and the heightened anxiety over politics, strained relationships, and so on. And, and if you're anything like me, you've probably been tempted to eat more and exercise less and, or drink more. And, and you put on your COVID-10 you know, or whatever. And, and, and it, it's just been an incredibly difficult time. And so in this series, starting in two weeks, we're going to look at what Scripture says about living well. On October 24th, we're going to talk about when life doesn't go well. How do you respond when things don't go the way you want? There are people who ask, why would God allow that to happen? We're going to, we're going to tackle that. And what do you do when life doesn't go well? And then we're going to talk about emotional wellness, relational wellness, physical wellness. And then on Thanksgiving Sunday, spiritual wellness. And talk about what scripture says about living well. And this is a part of that. Being able to forgive is a power move that frees both them and you. And I want to close with a story that is, uh, you know, I have to give trigger warnings here. Um, a story that is, uh, is very much real. And it's a story of a, a person uh, who gave me permission to tell her story, but I'm going to change her name anyway. I'm going to call her Christina. And um, I have known her and her husband through a, a church I served at 20 years ago, a long time ago. And, and Christina is this bubbly, outgoing person, kind of a life of the party. If you, if you, you know, see her in the morning at church, she throws her arms around you, probably not COVID time, but, you know, before COVID, throw her, throws her arms around you, and, hey, good to see you. And she just, you know, just laughs easily, and she's an inspiration, and she's just a great Christian lady. And... When I first heard her story, I was shocked because it was hard for me to believe that somebody who was that bubbly and effervescent and happy had gone through something like this. And if she can gain freedom, then, then anybody can. And so I want to share her story. And she, she told me that between the ages of 6 and 18, her father repeatedly abused her. And, and the abuse was, was sexual in nature. And she said it became a regular part of her life, starting at six years old. She said she would be in her bedroom, and she would see her mom look out her bedroom window, and she would see her mom pull out of the driveway 
and she thought to herself, it's going to happen again. Imagine the horror. And some of you can't. Some of you can't imagine that. And so she lived in this nightmarish situation from the age of six until she went to college. Some of you have been wronged in this way, and I don't want to bring more of that up, but these kinds of things need to be discussed more openly. And it gives people permission to talk about them because these kinds of things happen. And if we raise awareness of it by talking about something like this in church, then that's a good thing, at least in my view. And so as she got older into her teen years, she went through a whole range of emotions that you can imagine, from, from anger to blaming herself, even though obviously it wasn't her fault, but she felt guilt as though something were wrong with her. That's, that's how children deal with trauma. We, we tend to blame ourselves as children. We assume that it's something we did that caused this. And so she went through this whole range of emotions and hating herself and wanting to die as a teenager because of what she experienced. And relief came when she left the house to go to college. She had not been raised in church, but when she got to college, she got involved in a Christian group. She met some people who invited her to this, this group on campus, and, and, and she met some guys who were not abusers. And she said that was a step toward healing. And, and, and she got into this group, and she heard the gospel, that, that Jesus gave his life on the cross. And, and, and she said she remembered hearing the words of Jesus from, from Luke 23 when Jesus said, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. And she heard that God loves each of us as we are, including her. And that, and that she is lovable and she's worthy and she's somebody. And, and she responded to God's invitation. She decided she wanted to follow Jesus. She became a Christian. Over the next few years, she, she grew in her faith. She went to counseling. She formed great Christian friendships, you know, in her group and, and dated some guys who were, who were healthier people. And she said that over time, in her mind, the picture of what her dad did to her began to get smaller, and her picture of Jesus' love for her began to get larger. That's how she described it. That the offense that was committed repeatedly, over and over and over again, that, that picture began to get smaller in her mind. And the picture of God's love for her and her worth as a person got bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and she decided, after several years of growing and, and, and counseling, going to counseling, that she wanted to forgive her dad. And can you imagine the, the power, the courage this takes? And so we know that she owed her father absolutely nothing. Didn't owe him a conversation, didn't owe him forgiveness, didn't owe him anything. What he did was inexcusable and heinous and criminal. But she decided that she wanted to meet with him. She arranged a meeting with her dad. And they sat down in the living room of the same house. And she said to her dad, I now know what you did to me does not belong on this planet. It is evil beyond description but I want you to know that I have the love of Jesus Christ in my life and he has given me the power to do this and I want you to know that I forgive you.
And can you imagine what that takes? Now, what do you think his response was? He denied the whole thing. Now, that's kind of a shock, but not a surprise. Because somebody who would do that to his daughter? Well, yeah, probably. Like Jesus, they, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And what they do? Well, they divided up his clothing by playing a dice game and crucified him. And at that point, you know what she told me, what Christina told me? She said it was, it was hurtful and disappointing that he denied it. But you know what she said? She's like, it didn't really matter. It didn't really matter. Because I was free. I was free. And it's been said, and you've probably heard this, when you forgive some, someone, you set someone free, and you discover that person was you. And she said that was true of my life. No matter what happened from this point on, Christina was a free woman. Again, she didn't know him the conversation. She could have forgiven him and, and moved on without ever seeing him. Again, either way. But what mattered was her father held no power over her anymore. Regardless of his response, that hell was over. That was out of her life. New life had been resurrected in her and she was a new, fully alive, free woman who could not be hurt by her father anymore because she made the powerful choice, the power move to send the offense away didn't excuse it, didn't deny it, didn't pretend like it was no big deal, certainly didn't trust them, didn't have a relationship with them anymore after that, didn't see the grandkids. It wasn't trust. The grief took years of counseling and talking to friends and working through that and, 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 and being able to move on emotionally. But the forgiveness was an instant choice, the powerful choice to just send it away. And I'm not gonna have that offense living rent-free in my head anymore. And she truly experienced the kind of peace and rest that I read Brad Jerzak talking about in this book. And so we're going to take communion here in a moment. And, and um, if you're watching online, all you need is a, a piece of bread and a beverage if you want to participate with us. And as we take communion today, I want to, to ask you, Rhetorically, obviously, in your own mind, was the list helpful of what forgiveness is not? Have you been able to forgive? Maybe you actually have been able to forgive that person that you were thinking of. And maybe, maybe you've forgived and, or forgiven and you've grieved and it's something that's not in your life anymore. Maybe you have forgiven and now what you need to do is grieve. Fully grieve the loss that was caused by that person. And maybe it does involve counseling or journaling or talking to a trusted friend, whatever that looks like. Or maybe, maybe, yeah, you're just like, I just feel like I can't forgive. I just don't want to let that offense go, the, the injustice of it. And if that's you, I'm not your judge. I want you to hear a pastor say that. I'm not in your shoes. And it could be a while. It could take time. It may be that you do the grieving and the, and, the, and the processing of the loss, and then maybe the feeling that you could actually make the choice to forgive, maybe that comes later. I don't know what that looks like in your life. But as we take communion, 
And thank you, Mike. Mike's coming around. If you want to hold up your hand, if you didn't get a, a communion uh, cup here, you, Mike will bring one around if you want to hold up your hand. Whatever that is in your life, communion is a dramatization of Jesus giving his life on the cross and his body broken, his blood shed. As he said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. They're acting in ignorance and darkness. And I pity them. And I pray for your forgiveness for these people who are hurting me right now. That's the kind of person we're following who has the power to set you free like that, no matter what was done to you. And it may be a long journey, but that's the person we're following. And so on the night he was betrayed, Jesus shared a meal with his disciples and he took bread and he thanked God for it and he broke it. And he said to my disciples, as often as you eat this, Eat this in remembrance of me. It's my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. So let's consume the bread now. And in the same way, he took the cup. He thanked God for it, and he said, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, remember me. Let's drink from the cup. Oh God, we are thankful for the book, A More Christ-like Way. And it is a challenging book in many ways. It's an attempt at applying what it looks like to follow Jesus to the 21st century that we live in now. And in a couple of chapters that were, that were heavy with a great deal of material, there was this thread of forgiveness. And as we think about what it means to follow you, who we want to be, the kind of people we want to be. God, all of us carry pain for things that were done to us, said to us, missed opportunities or, you know, things that were disappointments to us and, and there was an offense. And forgiveness is one of those cliche topics in church that it's just, it's actually, it's obvious, it's, it's uh, usually more guilt-producing when it's talked about because people who have already been hurt feel like, oh, I can't forgive, and then, and then it just makes things worse. And that's what we, want, we don't want to do here. God, forgiveness is not excusing it. It's not trusting the person. It's not, not denying it, pretending it was no big deal. It's not, it's not uh, forgetting It's not the same as grieving. Wherever we are in the process, God, of forgiveness, we do hear your words that if we don't forgive, we're living in bondage as well. And it's giving something power in our lives that we can be free from. We're not meant to live like that, imprisoned by that offense. We don't want to live like that. We want to be free people but it's so hard to know how. It could be that what needs to happen is grief and processing with the counselor, a friend, journaling, whatever it looks like to express grief. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's just somehow through, through your power getting the place like Christina where she just, she got to the place where she saw your love as bigger than the offense and she was tired of dealing with it and she wanted to make the powerful choice to 
to say, Father, forgive this person for this horribly evil act who was acting in ignorance and darkness, and I just don't want to be weighed by this anymore, and I want to be free. If that's where we are, God, help us to declare that we forgive. And that doesn't mean that it's all instantly gone and over again. Maybe that grief process takes a long time. But at least we're free. And that is a part of what it means to follow Jesus in the Jesus way that Brad Jersak writes about. And God, we thank you for that freedom and that you have something better for us than being imprisoned by the offenses that people have committed against us. That we can rise above it and be the bigger person. And we thank you that you forgive us and you love us and you accept us as we are. We're recipients of your grace. In Jesus' name, everybody said.